few weeks ago, a newspaper headline asked, Is woke to be the only religion allowed in U.S. public schools? Another headline reported that the Google search engine has gone woke by adding an inclusive language function designed to suggest politically correct terminology. Our kids are learning that being woke is a virtue. What does it mean to be woke? How does wokeness mesh or not mesh with a biblical world and life view? How can we talk with our kids about wokeness in ways that are informed and balanced? Is there a Christian response to the dogmas of wokeness? That's what we're addressing today as we chat with Noelle Maring about her new book, Awake Not Woke, on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here at CPYU, and today we will be diving into what I believe is a much-needed discussion about one of the biggest and most influential cultural realities of our times. If you listen regularly to Youth Culture Matters, you know that this podcast exists as a place to have thoughtful conversations about understanding and then responding biblically to the trends that are shaping children and teens today. And you also know, as you, if you've stuck with us for some time, that a lot of what we talk about in relation to youth culture, it, we're not just talking about those who are young, since youth culture in so many ways is directive for all of us, regardless of our age, and therefore I think reflected, reflective of all as well, regardless of age. So uh, we're going to have this conversation today about, about one of these trends that is important, it's a cultural reality that is known by many names, but most familiar to you might be terms like critical theory uh, or the woke ideology or wokeism. And I've been reading and listening for a couple of years on this. I know it's been on, our, on, our, uh, on the forefront of our minds. I mean, if we watch the news or we engage with our kids and their teachers in schools or even in our churches, we hear these words come up from time to time, and I've been trying to read and listen widely in order to help me understand not only what's happening, but how these trends are influencing and changing us for better or for worse. So, you know, I've heard all kinds of accusations, people on all sides, you know, saying, hey, you're woke, or not necessarily directed to me, but we hear this a lot, you're woke, you're a racist, you're homophobic or transphobic, whatever. And I wonder if we seriously understand what it is we're talking about. And I, and I mean all sides in this as well. I don't know that we're not really uh, informed super well. So I've been on a search for voices who provide trustworthy analysis and guidance from a posture that I value. That's one of Christian humility and depth. Uh, these would be voices that understand history, theology, philosophy, and who take a balanced and honest look at these issues critical thinkers, I think, who uh, themselves are teachable and who have discernment. And we're welcoming one such voice that we've come across today. Uh, Noelle Maring is here today. She is a fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where she co-directs the Theology of Home Project. She's an editor for Theology of Home, co-author of the Theology of Home book series, and the author of a new book, which I've read uh, it's called Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult 
of progressive ideology. And she studied philosophy and theater at Westmont College out in California. I say out there, that's where you are, right, Noel? Uh, that's living where I'm out, out right? uh, Living in California. We're in Pennsylvania, so it's out there. And she did graduate work in philosophy at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ohio. I've been on that campus, great place. And as I said, she lives in Southern California with her husband and her six children. So, Noel, welcome. Thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the obvious question here. You wrote a book, and I am curious about why this became an issue for you, what led you to write this book, and maybe a little of the backstory on that would be helpful for us to hear. Sure. Well, I've always been really interested in what would be called culture war issues, you know, abortion, uh, what is marriage, um, sexual revolution, uh, and how Christians speak about them, where how, how, in, how much we ought to be engaged in those sort of battles and conversations, how much we ought to retreat from them. And it was interesting to me to hear varying perspectives that Christians had on, on that sort of engagement. Um, some Christians would believe that, you know, this is harming our, our gospel witness, that this is, you know, we're coming off as too um, strident and turning people away. And, you know, and there's certainly a, a stridency that way, there's just can be a strident way which we can do it, which can harm the Christian message. But it just seemed to me that fundamentally, these are issues that so deeply affect the human person, how we live our lives, whether or not we um, can lead lives of virtue, whether or not we can come to love what is good and to ultimately love and know our Lord um, through, through uh, a, a real deep fostered love of the good. Um, and so when the woke movement really started coming on the scene, it seemed to me that things were escalating quite a bit and that, uh, you know, uh, there was one instance where I started writing articles about the woke movement and there was one instance in particular, there was a news story about a woman, a female police officer who accidentally somehow and negligently shot and killed a black man in his apartment. She went to the wrong apartment and um, in the in her in the court trial, she, her, his brother took the stand and very beautifully expressed mercy and forgiveness to to her in the name of Jesus Christ and said, "My brother was a Christian. He would have wanted you to be feel forgiven." And and they wound up embracing each other in the courtroom. It was just a wonderful, beautiful moment of mercy. And I remember Christians being really divided. Some were just you know sharing this story and just, you know, praising God for this wonderful example of forgiveness. And others were scolding the people <laughs> for sharing the story, saying, you know, your attention and elevation of this moment of mercy is detracting from the fundamental injustice in the story. The injustice is what we need to focus on, not this, not the mercy. Uh, and that was really striking to me because these were Christian voices who were, you know, say, arguing for this, that position. And it seemed to me that there was some, you know, false dichotomy at work here, that mercy and justice are fundamentally opposed to each other, which they are not. Uh, and that the mercy is more beautiful because of the recognition of the deep injustice of the, of the killing. Um, and so that was one of the things, you know, there are several events like that where I started realizing, okay, Christians are really getting divided through this ideology. And that seems like something worth exploring and understanding better and to try to root out why this division was happening. So I just began writing articles about it, uh, and then I, I, I was sort of playing in my mind the idea of writing a book, 
And I've been writing a few books called um, the Theology of Home book series with my publisher. And one evening, the title Awake Not Woke just came to mind. And I emailed him and just put out a proposal. And the next morning, he said, let's, let's do it. Let's and greenlit it. So that was early 2020, actually. I started writing the book two weeks before COVID quarantine started. All my kids came home. I had to carve out a little place in my room to write. And I was sharing a computer with them while they were trying to do their schooling. It just was crazy. And then the uh, 2020 summer of riots started. And all of a sudden it felt like, wow, all of this ideology is playing out in the streets, you know, quite um, um, extremely. And so then it sort of lent a, a new urgency to the book. So I think it took about five to six months. I researched for about a month, but I've been researching it for a while before that too. And then wrote it in about five months and it came out after, yeah, after the editing process came out last May. It, and it seems for me, you know, as I think back, you're, you're right. This has happened quickly. I mean, it's just, it seems all of a sudden in the public consciousness. And I know that social media has certainly fueled that, you know, where we can post anything at any time and just about anybody can see it. And I know as you talk about that particular incident there where uh, in the courtroom, you know, in that moment, I'm sure on social media, that's where a lot of that played out among believers. I know I watched some of that happen and I, I tend to pull back and just stay, stay st- silent, you know, and I know I take some heat for that, but uh, you know who was it? Alan Jacobs said, "You know, if you can if you can throw gasoline on the on the heat, but no nothing that's helpful that nobody said before. It's really not helpful to throw any fuel on that fire on social media. But it does it has gotten me thinking, and I'm wondering. It, it, you know, you said that before that you had written an article. Was there a particular time when the whole idea of a woke ideology or being woke?" you know, suddenly it was like, wow, I've never heard that before. Was there anything that really brought that to fruition for you where you said, I really need to to understand this further? Or was that the moment? That was certainly a moment. Uh, there were a few instances. Uh, at my my alma mater, actually, I started hearing and reading in the paper, uh, their school paper about a bunch of series of protests they were having um, about, you know, is woke stuff um, that seemed... It's. It just was made really clear to me that the reaction to, was far bigger than what just what the source of of the anger was. Um, so, and I, it just made me think back to when I was in college, and what that experience was like, and what the experience of a college kid is having now, where there is this incentive to be aggrieved, right? That we've given these young people when they should be studying, they should be learning to love our Lord, they should be making friendships, they should be asking the big questions of life, you know, and, and, and forming themselves as adults. Instead, we've removed all of that and replaced it with this sort of moral stature of find, identifying as a victim or being an ally of victims. And it really creates a different outlook in how you approach your life and how you're being formed, where your virtue comes not from um, you know, the traditional growth in virtue, where we're trying to be prudent, we're trying to be generous, we're trying to be people of justice, you know, all, the, all of these things. But rather that your virtue comes from being political, that the political has so imbued itself into every aspect of, of our lives. And, and I think that, that was very deliberate. Um, but I, it, it just occurred to me in thinking about my time at college, how much that would have harmed my own spiritual growth my own maturation process. You know, that so much of, of growing up and being formed as a young adult is not 
it's learning to take responsibility for your own life, not to look at people to identify where they're at fault or identify where they might be harming you, but rather to learn how I can uh, examine myself, how, you know, how I can take, take, take responsibility for what I'm doing. And that's the thing I can control, right? I can't control other people. Um, so it, it just, see, that was another moment where I just felt like, you know, this is something that is really deeply harming people. And I think everyone, not just college kids, but the people that the movement ostensibly claims to want to help. You know that 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 then that they're giving, they're taking some uh, avenue, um, necessary human avenue of growth and control and responsibility and life ownership, that is the um, the way that we move forward in life, the way we achieve success in relationships, the way we achieve success in our in our work in the workforce, in friendships, they're taking that away from people, and in and under the name of wanting to help them ate that sort of moral agency. And in so do in, in so far as they're doing that, they are harming um, the pe you know, the people they claim to most want to help. But I think it harms everyone. And I think that that's, you know, I really feel like I wrote the book out of a love for people that I, you know, that this is, this is not good. This is not good. It's, it's actually extremely destructive um, and needs to be thought more deeply about. Yeah, and certainly that commitment of your love for people came through as I read it, and that's one of the one of the reasons why we're we're having you on here because it's not like you have an axe to grind. You really want to see people flourish, and and grow, and and I know that comes out of your deep faith. Can you just because we want to be sure people who are listening know exactly what we're talking about here? Can you talk about the, the phrase, you know, the word woke? You know, what does that mean? What is the woke ideology? And then I would love for you to get into some of the history of how this came about, because, you know, we, we truly believe that, you know, ideas are rooted um, in, in history. Ideas evolve, so to speak. Uh, and I think it's helpful to see where this came from, because I think most people are ignorant to that. And that's one of the great benefits of your book is you you unpack that for us. Sure. Well, I think, you know, the way, a, if you are woke, if you're a woke person, would I think the most neutral definition that they would say is that it's the state of being alert and attuned to the various layers of oppression in society um, on, on all the hot button issues. So along the lines of race, um, gender, sexuality, um, and it's raising the consciousness of people around you to see the fundamental layers of oppression in, um, in their lives and the lives of everyone else, and then becoming activists to fight against it. Um, but it, it feels like a new movement, but you're right. It's deeply rooted in a whole lineage of thought that uh, I go into in the book. Um, and, it, you know, it's, I, I ring, I think it's a self-deifying movement. So you can say that it starts with a snake in the garden controlling the first woman to, uh, that she might be as God. Um, but, you know, historically, I think it's, you know, you have to root it somewhere. And, and, and most people would say you root it in Karl Marx. Uh, but I also think it's really important to understand Hegel, who Marx was very influenced by. Um, and Hegel's notoriously complex, but the, I think there's a couple of important takeaways from him is that he, he really, uh, really uh, argued for the, 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 the idea that reality is a process moving towards an absolute perfect state of being. And that process moves forward, it develops itself 
through um, the what he called the the dialectic, and the dialectic was the state of you know an idea interacting with nature or the uh, or the the political state organization, and in that interaction there's going to be contradictions. There's going to be conflicts, and the resolving of the conflicts then moves you forward to a, no, a new a synth what he called the synthesis, a new level, new status quo, and then there's going to be more conflict and more contradictions. Those get worked out. And it starts this series of sort of uh, like mini revolutions that progress us into the perfection. So you can really see the seeds there of utopian ideology. And Marx really uh, log, uh, locked into that kind of um, that dialectic model, but he was a strict materialist. So he applied it strictly to the material world um, and particularly with, uh, with, it, with economics that, you know, the, that there's a, a you know, oppressor and oppressed um, along the lines of the, the economic class, and that through a series of the, the oppressed, the proletariat realizing the, the oppression of their lives, that they would rise up, revolt, and eventually we would achieve a perfect state through a series of revolutions, communism. Um, this did not happen. He believed it was inevitable. And so a group of German Marxists formed an institute to examine why this revolution had not come to pass and how we could see the revolution in the West. And they, along with other communists at the time, started to uh, shift their thinking that this there was a fundamental psychology of the oppressed that prevented revolution. And it was an internal authoritarian instinct, you know, that, they, that we have authoritarian structures in the family, that we um, are, you know, you know, insofar as we're, we have faith that we are taught to contextualize our suffering rather than revolt against it. And that was in Marx's thought too, as well, obviously with the, the uh, opium of the masses. So they realized that what we have to do is we have to, a couple of things, broaden the revolution beyond the level of economics. We have to divide people on in further, um, along further categories. Um, and we have to disabuse people of the human instincts towards um, uh, piety, towards country, towards fatherhood, towards uh, family life, and towards the faith. Um, so they came to America, welcomed by John Dewey to be uh, kind of matriculated into Columbia University in 1935 and went spread out to Hollywood and just started seeding revolutionary ideas in, um, in our movies, in our, our uh, art in culture, particularly in the, um, in, at the education, in the academy, in the education system. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, we're able to broaden the, this sort of ideology into further, um, further institutions and really seed this sort of revolutionary thought into so many layers and levels of society that it would grow and the revolution became not on the streets but in our schools in our movies and our all of our institutions and that, and that this was a long game that eventually if we can get this revolutionary mindset growing it can turn into something that is so um so uh fundamental to the way we approach society that it will just you know create the the revolutionary process on its own uh, and i think it's been really effective and so it's also really good at reinventing our, itself so you know the frankfurt school guys they're the ones who really uh started the idea of critical theory um and and they're the ones who came from germany 
the Frankfurt School. The ones yes, who came yeah. from Germany, yeah. So, and 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 critical theory basically uh, changed the way of thinking that we that what education is, what thought is, is not for the sake of arriving at something true, but rather for the sake at changing structures of power. So the goal is not to get uh, to um, arrive at the truth, but rather to gain power. And so you can see that those different ends create very different methods of learning. So if your if your goal is truth, then you invite criticism, you invite objections because you want to strengthen your argument and you want to course correct if you're off course. If your goal is not truth but power, you don't invite objections; you silence them. Um, they serve no purpose if you if your if your goal is power. Um, and, and 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 rather you have to um, you know the point of critical theory is just sort of to tug at and point out and um, and rub raw the sores of discontent throughout society to point out everything that's wrong to criticize a thing until you have effectively destroyed it um, and in so doing it's an effective you know it's it's been effective <laughs> very yeah. effective at that yeah so the what yeah oh, well, I was gonna so say that really yeah. Go ahead. Finish Sorry. what you were going to say. So that 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 kind of combined with then the postmodernism that that uh, ran rampant the, from this powder keg of all, the critical theory, the postmodernism came this woke movement. But it really is fundamentally still an operated operates on that engine of that dialectic of revolution. Um, so it's it, it's it's a reinvent it's a rebranding really of those old utopian ideals that the revolution will lead to perfection yeah now you you said something that was really interesting to me uh you you talked about that that the frank these folks from the frankfurt school or these early uh thinkers and theorists who were you know propagating this and working through this they seeded it you know that it's uh, you know so i think about seeding my lawn it's a deliberate thing that i do and so this really hasn't happened just by chance it it's been a deliberate movement towards, as you said, a, a revolution uh, of sorts. You know, talk a little bit about that, because I think some people, you know, they just think that, that culture just sort of happens without any any kind of, uh, you know, influences or, or deliberate directed uh, efforts. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, there's two ways in particular that I think have been extremely effective. One is through popular culture, um, and the other is through school, the school system, you know, and so with popular culture, you know, I grew up thinking through a feminist lens, just because that was the lens that was presented to me. I wasn't reading feminist tomes, or I wasn't reading, you know, the works of Margaret Sanger or Karl Marx, but I was watching Friends, you know, and I was reading People magazine and watching, you know, I, you know, the contemporary movies. And there's, it's such an effective delivery system for ideology. Because you just start thinking, oh, this is what it is to be a woman, that you are powerful so far as you don't need a man and, um, you know, you live this licentious lifestyle and um, it looks great on the television television show. Um, and I think that's been hugely effective. And that was very deliberate. So the, the Frankfurt School, a couple of the figures went to Hollywood and they said they, they would they hated, for example, a movie like they would hate a movie like It's a Wonderful Life. Because the message of the movie is that, you know, that, he, that truly that his small unsung life of family and community is the thing that's most fulfilling. Um, and that, that they, you know, they, they would make a point that Frankfurt School uh, figures would make a point that the point of art is always political. It always has to be political. It's never to show the beauty of someone's life. You never want to remind them of the goodness of their life. You want to raise their consciousness to the horror of their life. 
and make them miserable. And that's how you, that's the point of, of art is to be political. Um, and, uh, and I think it's been hugely effective. If you look at the movies that have, you know, the last 10 years of Oscar winners, they're almost all about oppression narratives, either along the lines of race, homosexuality, uh, feminism, and, you know, some of that is good. You know, we, we do need to unsee the injustice of racism and um, how Christian or, you know, people have behaved horrifically in various contexts. But the sheer ubiquity of that message um, again and again and again, that's the point of Frankfurt School. They would say, you know, that you even if you have to exaggerate the truth, even if you have to go, you, you keep re reminding people of oppression until they've lost all perspective of, you know, that it that it's you know it becomes the the totalizing point of life, um, and so that was a really that's a that was a really effective way of seeding uh, the the ideology. But the in the school system as well, um, you know Herbert Marcuse, who was a celebrity Frankfurt School figure in the '60s, he mentored Angela Davis and was hugely influential. He knew that you have to get at the youth, um, and so they you know he trained some or mentored some of the weather underground figures who after becoming revolutionaries in the 60s and violent ones at that went on to have cushy jobs as you know like a chair at the teachers college and where they were able to effectively seed this ideology into the school systems way and then you know training uh, uh training people influential educators who would then go on to disseminate throughout their own school system this sort of thing um, most teachers are steeped in, you know, critical pedagogies, uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed or um, the politics of education. These are were hugely influential books um, that are basically just saying, enforcing the importance of equity of outcome. You know, that this is what the point of it is to be a teacher is, is to achieve and train students to become activists on their, of, of their own ilk. Um, and I think we're seeing that come to huge fruition now with the school board meetings and everything that's happening that parents have a new awareness of over the past couple of years, in part because of COVID and seeing all what's happening on Zoom, um, but also because they've escalated, I think, in the last couple of years, uh, sort of, I think, seeing that they're being exposed. There's an escalation that they respond to that exposure with. Um, and it's... We, it gives us a lot of hope. I think it can give us a lot of hope because we've seen how effective parents standing up for their children's rights and their own parental rights has been. Yeah, this is so good. We need to take a break, but I just want to mention that in the book, you talk about how the Frankfurt School has marched through three institutions. You've mentioned them you know, briefly here, family, academy, you know, the school system and such, uh, uh, higher ed, so forth and so on, and then also the culture. And I think sometimes... We forget, you know, we say here, we're, we're trying to teach youth workers and parents to teach kids to look critically and Christianly at all the marketing that they engage with day by day. And as you're talking here about film, I'm thinking about how the advertising world, just at the, at the level of television commercials, have changed. Uh, and if you're not looking carefully, it's very subtle. I know people notice it, but they don't actually understand what's behind so much of it. And, uh, you know, this is where I think we can have great conversations with our kids when we see these things about the very ideas that you're talking about and, and contrast that with the truths of the gospel. So uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Noelle uh, about her new book, Awake, Not Woke.
I often hear grandparents say how glad they are that they don't have to raise kids in today's world. While these comments might not be very encouraging to those of us who are parents or who are doing youth ministry with kids today, they do recognize the fact that there are lots of confusing and dangerous cultural realities that kids need to navigate if they are going to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. In an effort to provide parents and youth workers with an easy-to-use tool designed to help kids find their way through the choices they face in today's world, I've written a new little book that can be used individually or in small groups, A Student's Guide to Navigating Culture. It's the shortest book I've ever written, but it's the one I believe will have the greatest impact in terms of discipling the emerging generations. If you want to teach your kids how to live in today's culture while following God's will and way, check out this new little book, A Student's Guide to Navigating Culture. You can learn more and order copies at cpyu.org. Thanks uh, again to Noelle Maring for joining us to talk about her new book, Awake Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. It's published by TAN, and we will be including, as we always do, links to everything that Noelle mentions, and we will uh, include links to her website. I know I was on there, and you've got a list of your articles, your appearances on podcasts, and elsewhere to, uh, to talk about what you're learning, what you're teaching. Uh, what you're dealing with is so, so all, it's a it's rich. There's so much stuff there, and we'll include a link to the book as well. So, and anything else Noelle mentions, we'll include links to as we always do. Go to our homepage, CPYU. Look for the player for this episode of Youth Culture Matters, and underneath Chris Wagner, we'll put all those links. So, uh, you know, one of the most helpful things Noelle that I read in the book, among many. Uh, are the dogmas of woke ideology, and uh, you have three of them. I- I'd love for you to just do a flyover of those. I know that people can get the book and, and go more deeply into those, but I think I- if we know what these are, I- we start to see them, and we start to hear them in the world around us, and-, and I think as well it's important for us to know what these are so that where correctives are needed, and they are, uh, we can push back with a corrective, especially to our kids who are so vulnerable. You mentioned before the break just about getting to the kids, and kids are so vulnerable. You know, they believe anything an adult says. I mean, this is just the way to them that life is. And But if we know what these dogmas are, we can we can point them out and correct them. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, just, just go through what those are. Sure, yeah. No, I was trying to distill down the, what the essence of the movement was. Um, you know, why does, uh, you know, movements for racial justice also want to have radical pronoun gender ideology in, in, uh, involved in it, too? Um, and what is the what's the sort of driving principles there? And so I distilled it down to three fundamental errors, which each are based on uh, a pairing of two things that ought to be in harmony with one another. And in the woke movement, one gets elevated to the, the detriment of the other. Um, so the first one is the elevation of the group identity over the detriment of the human person. The second one is the emphasis on our will, our desire, uh, at the expense of our reason and a stable human nature. And the third one is an emphasis on, on power and a rejection of, of right authority. Um, and you know, just skimming over those three, the, to, the three things that are diminished are the person, reason, and authority, which uh, 
are, are the three characteristics of the logos, who you know, the, which is the mind of God, and manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, who's the author and authority over all. And I do think that he is the ultimate target of the movement. Um, so in the first one, group over person, you know, human persons are meant to be in groups. Those, but but a properly ordered group incorporates the good of the person with the good of the group. So the, the best example for that would be a well-functioning family where the mother and the father take the good of the child as their own good. And the, the good of the family is the, is the good of the, each person in the family is incorporated into the good of the whole. They're not antagonistic to each other um, in, in a way that very much respects the human person. And the, in the, in the way the ideology works is that the person is really only important insofar as he or she is a totem of the ideology. So for example, you know, there's a, in the Women's March in 2017, there was a group of pro-life feminists who wanted to march alongside them in official, and they had officially sponsored the walk and the organizers rejected them because they said, you're in, insofar as you're pro-life, you, you know, you can't really be affiliated with us because the, the, the point of the, of the march was not to support women, it was to support ideology and abortion is the fundament of the, the, so deeply at the core of the redefinition of the human person that's hap happening here. And that redefinition is that we center oppression. So for example, in the uh, Judeo-Christianity, we would say that we are defined um, by being sons and daughters of God, that we are defined by love himself. And that gives us a uh, mission to go out and spread the good news to people that they are loved as well. In the ideology, we are defined not by the love of God, but by the hatred of society. We're defined along the lines of oppression. That's where we center our oppression, the oppression, either by being uh, perpetrators of oppression or by being victims of it. And that gives us a reverse mission, not to go out and spread the good news to people that they're loved, but rather that they are to, to raise the consciousness of people that they are hated. So in, it, it mimics Christianity in this inverse and rather disordered way, I think. Um, by that kind of opposite um, mission. Um, and so the person really becomes reduced here. And you see that you're only, in, you're only helpful to the movement and value the movement insofar as you parrot the ideology. And when you step out of lines, why when you see uh, a black conservative man will be you know, vilified, he won't be given a platform, he won't be uh, um, encouraged because it's the ideology, not the minority status that they are in support of. So that's the first uh, that, that's the first lie, and I think it really creates this victimhood, um, this incentive uh, incentive to find your identify as a victim and then publicize your victim status, which turns us into accusers. Yeah, can I it's, can I before we're victims? Yeah, yeah, and this is so helpful. And I, you know, in our world, let's say in the world of youth ministry, you know, one of the big topics right now it's that we're trying to deal with is what what does it mean to find your identity not in where the culture is telling you to find your identity, but to find your identity, as you said, uh, in who we are as sons and daughters of God. You know, so, so we, we talk about what it means to be made by a loving God in God's image, what that all encompasses. Uh, that gives us value, dignity, and worth, and we certainly are pushing, uh, even for those who would say that, that they are oppressed, we, we want to see their value, their dignity, and their worth, and affirm that and help help everybody understand that. But also, you know, then for those who are, quote-unquote, in Christ, you know, that when God looks at us, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ. So we find our identity there. But in what you're talking about here, group over person, how does that play out um, in the search for identity, you know, for a young person? What, what are our kids hearing about— uh, 
you know, practically speaking, where to find their identity? Like, ultimately, where does that, where, where will that come for them in, if they follow the woke ideology? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think if you, if, when I think back on being a, a kid, being a teenager, being a young adult, there are ways in which any human person can be tempted to use their suffering as a weapon, right? Um, and, and I think it's so important to form kids and how do we suffer well? Yeah. Not where we become doormats, you know, where we are people of justice. So if there's something unjust happening that we need to fight against that. But we are people who are called to take our suffering and and allow that to help us to love people more, right? To be more empathetic, to be more tender, to, you know, to to it's 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 a it's an invitation to be have deeper connections with other human beings. And the ideology really pushes against that and wants the exact opposite, where your suffering is not meant to aid that process of um, uh, relationship, but rather to um, to divide relationships even deep, more deeply. Uh, and, and I think that's really important to see understand that, because uh, I, when you are introducing kids into this ideology, you're basically um, kind of deconstructing who they are. You're saying, okay, you know, we're, who you are is a privileged, you know, white male, for example. And there's, you know, in privilege in the ideology implicitly means guilty. You know, you're, you're, yeah. this is bad. This is not a good, you, something that you should be rather ashamed of. Um, and so you don't, you don't have as much access to the truth as someone who has, is in these categories, these more oppressed categories, you know, racially oppressed or, or you're a female or whatever, um, you're, you're gay that the more um, victim status you can claim, the more access and epistemological um, uh, uh, ability you, you, you have. And so it, it's in, that, in that deconstruction of what it is to be a human person, you're incentivizing these kids to say, well, huh, I, you know, how, can I, how can I, where can I find my oppression? Where can I find my victim status? Um, and in order to find that, you have to find people to accuse. So it starts seeding this desire to find fault in others. Who can I accuse? Who is who is against me? Um, and then if you know if you can't claim any victim status, then you, you you know the the goal is to become the best you know the the most effective ally to the people who are oppressed. And so then still it's seeding this desire to identify people who are not effective allies. Um, it turns us into not just victims but accusers. You know, and who is the great accuser? That's that's the character of Satan. Um, you know, that's the, that's what the devil does. And the, the, the faith, the Christianity invites us not to become accusers, but to become people who, you know, examine our own souls, right? Um, and in that examination, you think about any relationship, any marriage, you know, any friendship, it's, it's, it's the worst thing you can do is to be constantly scanning that person for the ways in which they are at fault, <laughs> right? It's just going to destroy any relationship. No friendship, no marriage can sustain that sort of um, that sort of posture. And the best thing you can do is think, well, how can I be more generous? How can I be, you know, what, what can I do to help my friend? What can I, you know, th these, these small hidden um, motions towards generosity are really the, the, the stuff of love. Um, and in, insofar as we're forming kids to not have that disposition, but to rather have that reverse disposition of accusation, it's really harmful, really dangerous for their formation. You know, an anti-Christian. Yeah, yeah, and and I want to ask you about this. A thought came to mind as you're talking about, you know, trying to sort of sort of look around and see, you know, how in in some unique way have I been oppressed? Have I been victimized? 
you know, I, I'm guessing, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, you know, Lisa Lippman and Abigail Schreier, the work that's been done on rapid onset gender dysphoria. You know, we always have known that, that, that kids want to find a place and a place to fit in. And they're, they're, they're going to dress, you know, to, to fit in. They're going to adopt, you know, the values of a, of a particular group to fit in if they need a group to fit in. Would, would you say that some of this is, is maybe feeding that, although the kids could never put a name to it? You know, just the, the air that we breathe of this ideology now is, is fueling that as well and making that an option to, you know, sort of put myself, even though I don't feel any sort of gender dysphoria, into uh, a group where I've, I've been victimized. Absolutely. I, I, I think Abigail Scherz did such important work. Um, it, I, it, Rod Dreher just covered in the American Conservative this story, heartbreaking story of this young woman who she got into Tumblr culture, and I guess there's the ideology is really prevalent there. And she just started feeling, describes this process of starting to feel sort of embarrassed that she was just this lame white girl. And so after a while of being, you know, exposed to this um, this uh, this ideology, she decided one day I'm just going to put my pronouns out there. And then, you know, she put she, her, and then she, and then after a while she thought, you know, I think I might change my pronouns. And she started just feeling like maybe there is something different about me too. And anyway, long story short, she eventually, you know, she changed to a he, him, and then started puberty blockers and um, uh, tra the transition process, the physical transition. She's since detransitioned, but you know, the way she describes it, it really is the seeding into her, was the seeding into her mind that, you know, there's, it's, it's kind of lame to not to be something different and that she could find some happiness. There's some path to happiness available to her in identifying in a way that was more marginalized. Um, and that put her on this road that was, you know, just enormously harmful. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that there is a huge, that's a, a play in, in the social contagion of the transgender ideology. Yeah, yeah. Talk about, uh, you know, the second dogma, will over reason. Yeah, and that I mean that obviously con connects to the to the transgender movement. But you know, the so the the big picture is that you know traditionally we are you know we are made happy and fulfilled <clears throat> through living lives of virtue. That's a path towards um, uh, a, a life of well-being, where we conform we conform our will to our reason. We see what is good, we see what is harmful, and that even if I desire this thing, if it's not um, for my benefit, then I should choose the thing that is, and then you know I'll fail, and then I keep training my will to sort of make a hap have develop habits of life that are going to be harmonious um and then eventually our de we desire the good you know we start our our affection becomes for what is actually good uh the the movement the ideology really reverses that that the the uh, frankfurt school guys uh, they're hugely influenced by freudian thought and they believe that human beings are polymorphously perverse that we you know that that it is through a process of conformity to societal moralic norms and taboos that we are rejecting sort of the state of liberation that we were meant to have. And so part of our freedom is not just fighting for oppression from fighting for liberation against oppressive groups, but it's also fighting for liberation from my own desire to repress myself to by conforming to traditional sexuality. Um, and so to become free is to become someone who is transgressive. Who is not just living a traditional life of marriage and family life and fidelity and chastity before marriage, but rather to become someone who is 
more is sophisticated enough to know that is in transgressing these moral norms that we find our liberation. Um, and even in the way we present ourselves, you know, that the most outlandishly we can present ourselves. So uh, that's part of our liberation as well, um, to really publicly be um, defiant of moral norms. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, we see it pretty clearly in the, in the transgender movement that I so, you know, I'm so, my identity is not even physical anymore. It's not even embodied. It's this, you know, it's whatever I think and whatever I, I, I will, um, even to the point of defiance of biological reality. Um, so it's obvious there, but it's also it was very much seeded through the sexual revolution. You know, you can't, uh, you're, you're been telling people that sex can be casual, that has nothing to do with permanence and fidelity and, and all the things that a baby implies, a baby needs. We're basically telling people that there is no meaning to the act of sex, that it mean it, it, it is so meaningless that you can um, choose, choose to do with, do with it whatever you will. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the consequence of this second lie and ideology is that innocence becomes a form of dominance. So, you know, this is this explains why we see like transgender story hours, that the movement believes that insofar as children and young people are innocent of transgressive lifestyles, they are perpetuating a dominant narrative that there is a, a right way of being, of living in the world. And so they have to, you have to disabuse children of their innocence of adult sexuality and alternative sexuality um, lifestyles in particular. Because uh, that's you, they are perpetual. Their innocence perpetuates the normativity of um, the very thing that is they believe is oppressing us, which is the, basically the moral law. Um, so this is why the movement goes so adamantly for for the kids, <clears throat> um, because you know, for well, for various reasons, but because their innocence is an affront in a way to the ideology. Mm. Uh, the third, the third uh, dogma is 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 uh, excuse me, power over authority, power over authority. Yeah, um, in, authority. In, the the right authority is you know they've so identified authority itself as being something oppressive that we're we're trained to see now any type of hierarchical structure as being one of domination, corruption, right? Um, and I think as Christians, we're really called to the opposite understanding of authority, that Christ modeled for us a servant leadership. You know, that he He led us by serving us. And that's what true love does, up to the point of dying on a cross. That's how, how, how deeply he loved us. And also that's how he modeled leadership. And I think that gives us uh, a, a window into what true leadership and authority is as Christians. You know, that the, you know, the, that the, the idea that the father um, is someone who is not there to control his children, but rather to raise them to be independent, responsible uh, people who are who can really live lives of freedom. Um, but we are, the movement is trained, I think the ideology really wants the, the opposite filter, uh, particularly for example, in fatherhood that we've so been trained by movies and film and, um, and uh, education that the, that fatherhood is really something either um, either ridiculous or oppressive, um, and uh, and it's it's really the the idea the goal ultimately I think is really to obscure our understanding of who God is, because the father is the icon the human icon uh, that our first window to the love of a father that communicates to us a window into God's love, um, and and you know once we lose the understanding of what a good what good fatherhood is we obscure our ability to even see his the nature of god a certain way because 
Um, he's not a father because he's like human fathers. He is the father. Human fathers are more fatherly insofar as they more closely imitate him. Um, he's the primary analgate. Uh, but insofar as we are obscuring that understanding and obscuring the understanding of motherhood as well, you know, we have so blurred all these categories of male and female and father and mother that we effectively no longer understand the richness of scripture, the bride and the bridegroom, you know, the wedding feast. Um, there's so much, you know, imagery and, and, and uh, that, that we are introduced to um, through understanding what these things mean in, on, our, in the, on the human level. Um, but all the movement want the movement wants to destroy all of that. The the idea that authority is rooted in something higher, that authority commands of, of us a sort of reverence, that it, it's in, in serving that we become free, and instead it's a, a constant non-servium. It's a constant I will not serve. There's nothing above. There's no authority. There's no right authority. There's no reverence that should induce in me, uh, but rather we flattened everything out to be purely about power. Um, power that re reveres nothing. Um, and it ironically, one of the consequences is that it becomes tyrannical, right? You know, there's no power, there's no powerful role that can really sustain um, itself if it's unaccountable. Um, and, and that's why this re these, these ideologies tend towards tyranny so often. You said something earlier I want to circle back to before we break. And you mentioned that Jesus Christ is the ultimate target of of the woke revolt and i know you wrote that in your book as well can you just explain that quickly because i you know <clears throat> excuse me with anything uh I, i'm thinking to myself i'm looking i'm looking looking like is there you know is there any truth in this is there is there anything redeemable in this and certainly you mentioned earlier that much of what's pointed out is that there are injustices there there is oppression that we need as followers of jesus christ to reckon with to repent of uh, to see change come, you know, to, to stick up for those who are uh, marginalized. Uh, but this is, th this is, you know, above and beyond that void of, you know, any sort of, of godly influence or understanding of God's good order and design for the world that he's created. And so when you said that, you know, how is Jesus Christ the ultimate target of the, of the uh, woke revolt? Um, I'm wondering, how does that, you know, what do you mean by that? And is there anything at all in this that we can pull away and say yes we can learn from this this is something we need to hear for, from the woke movement yeah well, i'll answer your second question first yes i think that, that that's why it's compelling right it's because it starts with true things and it appeals to the christian precept to be compassionate to walk with the marginalized to walk with the suffering those are true and good and right um instincts and uh, precepts that 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 they're appealing to but it manipulates you by taking those good and right precepts and then saying this ideology is the only way in which you can live that out. If you want to, if you want to be on the right side of and fighting against injustice, you have to do it in this manner. Um, and it's totalizing in that way. Uh, but to answer your first question, um, well, even historically, you can look at Karl Marx was a rabid atheist. Um, he wrote a friend or a great writer, Paul Kangor, wrote a book called *The Devil and Karl Marx*, just examining all of the sort of demonic stuff that he had in his writing. Um, but uh, it really is a revolutionizing of so much of the Christian message, where we are, you know, as Christians made in the image and likeness of God. The ideology reverses that in, um, deeply in the literature that man creates society and creates the ultimate eschaton you know the the perfection of society 
from himself. And once he develops the correct political consciousness, then he can create a new, a better world by developing that, creating the uh, other men in his image. So it's really an inversion of the Christian message. But fundamentally, I think it's um, an attack on Christ in the three, you can see that can stem flow exactly from the three dogmas. So in the first dogma, we identify ourselves, define ourselves in, as accusers. In the second one, we define ourselves by our transgression. And you see this in the LGBTQ movement that that becomes who you are. That's not something you do or something you struggle with or something you're inclined towards or something, um, you know, whatever. It is your identity. I am LGBTQ. And then in the third, we identify ourselves with a, a refusal to serve. And those three things, accuser, the devil calls you by, not by your name, but by your sin as a transgressor. And then the devil is a fundamentally in the perpetual rebellion against serving. Um, and the, the uh, you know, Christ invites us to all, all three of those are a direct attack on him. Um, Jesus calls us not by our sin, but by our name. Um, Je Jesus models for us that it is in serving that we... Um, that we that we lead and jesus models for us that we are not to um, define ourselves by the, the faults of others but by calling ourselves a sinner and appealing for his mercy so these it, it's the it's really the inverse in in all those fundamental ways of who christ is and and i think that 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 is uh it's fitting because that he is the true target mm. uh you, you know uh, just one thing when i read in the book you sent me on a uh on a hunt, of course, I, you know, I'm starting to Google things, but uh, let your freak flag fly, which, you know, I'm looking at the origins of that. And I know it goes back to a Jimi Hendrix song. Um, you know, at least that's what people point to. And I remember that. I remember that song. I'm old enough to remember that. But now that's become a mantra, uh, as you mentioned, you know, just about, you know, li living outside of any outside authority and finding your identity in yourself, you know, self-determination and all of that. Uh, that's actually seen as being virtuous, right? Uh, you know, that's let your let your freak flag fly. And I, I've actually heard that uttered um, to youth workers as an encouragement to them. And I wasn't, you know, it never really dawned on me what exactly was being said then uh, by the person that said that. And so you really got me thinking about that. But the, yeah, this is so good. Uh, we're going to take one more break, come back. Get, uh, I want to get really practical here. Uh, this has all been very practical uh, but I want to talk specifically to youth workers and to parents about how to begin uh, to respond to this. So we'll be right back. Stick with us. Tens of thousands of kids have been trained by their parents and youth workers to think Christianly about music and media with our How to Use Your Head to Guard Your Heart 3D Guide to Making Wise Media Choices. This easy-to-use teaching tool needs to be in your youth ministry toolbox if you desire to teach your students to integrate their faith into all of life. Jesus calls us to follow Him, and that includes following Him into the six to nine hours a day of screen time that shape and mold the beliefs and behaviors of our kids. To learn more about our 3D Media Evaluation Guide and to order a copy for every member of your youth group, go to our website at cpyu.org teach your kids to engage with media to the glory of God. Okay, now 
Well, as we t- as we turn the corner and start to finish up, I do have a few more questions. I have so many that I'm not going to get to, so we're going to have to have you back at some point. But uh, I, I, I don't think we can have a conversation about this as people who are trying to evaluate this and maybe speak to this and teach to this without talking about cancel culture. Can you help us understand that a bit? What are the dynamics there of what's going on? Because I've had this happen to me, and and I had a situation where it was a, a brother in Christ, very abrupt, for something that I had posted that, that was a quote. And, and by the way, you, you nailed it earlier when you said it was a, uh, a conservative-thinking black man who I quoted uh, that I thought had, had said some tremendously great things and was offering some great wisdom in the midst of uh, a difficult time in our, in our country's history. And, and I had a, a brother just say, you know, how dare you, canceled, never using you again. And there was just no opportunity for conversation, no question of why did you post that, what did you mean by that, and any sort of explanation I tried to, to give just, just fell on, it fell on deaf ears. It was not listened to, you know, done over. So, so that was my first experience with uh, cancel culture. And I think that makes you, you're fearful. You know, you, you're, you're afraid to say anything. And I hear more and more people saying this, but I also know that as followers of Jesus Christ, we, we have to be bold, uh, especially as these ideas take root and grow and we become uh, more and more marginalized and, and following Jesus is actually more and more of a risky thing, which I know globally Christians are very aware of, but maybe we're not so much here. And then also in the scriptures, you know, we read this. So uh, just talk a little bit about cancel culture and how we can best respond to that. Yeah, no, cancel culture is deeply a part of the movement. There was this really pivotal um, writing from Marcusa in the 60s called Repressive Tolerance, just basically saying that part of the way you further the ideology is by silencing voices that are promulgating um, you know, the old way or you know, traditional ways of thinking. Um, that silence is actually an essential instrument for furthering ideology. Um, you, you, you can hear this in Ibram Max Kendi and Robin D'Angelo. They both argue for more or less the same sort of thing, repressive tolerance that you have to, um, it's not about here debating, it's not about equal voices, it's not about dialogue, it's actually about dominance, that you have to reject the old ways. Um, and reject voices that are not furthering the ideology. So it's really an essential part of the movement. It's an essential instrument of, of uh, getting people on board be- for precisely the reason you say, which is that people have become then become fearful. It demonstrates to you something that is, you know, an absolutely horrifying prospect to be publicly called out as, you know, a, you know, a bigot or old fashioned or, or uh, racist. You know, these are horrifying prospects. Um, there's almost nothing worse to be called than to be called a racist, you know, and it's bandied about now, at, at, you know, so, um, so negligently that it dilutes, that's the, that, that's the irony, it dilutes real instances of injustice because it's become something that is, um, you, you know, you can be a racist without, um, without any, without any, uh, uh, just be, you know, just because you're you're white, for example. Yeah. So that's I mean, that's that's one of the concepts in in D'Angelo, um, that all white people need to accept the fact that they're racist. So it's not even something you can take culpability for or find culpability for. It's not something you've said or something you thought or something you've willed. It's rather just your identity. You know, this is um, hugely irresponsible. Um, but how, you know, so what do we do about that? I mean, I think that it's effective insofar as it instills fear, and the, so then. 
to my mind, the, the less fearful we are of that, then the less effective it is uh, as a weapon. Um, I've been called out before on, on social media for, um, it sounds like some, uh, you know, similar things. And um, it, it, it feels awful, but it, um, I realized the, I, there's nothing that I think the movement can do to me that is worse than me remaining silent when I see it as such this, these fundamental harmful injustices being done and being instituted into our, our thought processes. Um, so I think we stand against it and we band together and we don't let ourselves be manipulated by it, manipulated by that, that um, fear. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good word. And I think just just knowing this is going to happen, right? Say that to yourself, this is going to happen. It's going to happen to me. And I, I know I've even heard instances of this where parents have been, quote unquote, canceled by their teenage children or perhaps even younger. I just because of what they're, you know, they're hearing outside of the home and then they bring this into the home. And and um, it's not as if we need more reasons for parents and teens to not get along and see eye to eye, but certainly this feeds it. Uh, so let me shift gears here real quickly before I get to uh, some practical responses from you for parents and youth workers. But one area where I see this really taking root and growing is in, in the church. I think we've, we've started to misunderstand what compassion, what kindness, and what love actually are, biblically speaking, and our approach to those, you know, to loving, showing compassion, showing kindness, has maybe been uh, more shaped or misshaped, we might say, deformed by the culture, as opposed to being shaped in positive, godly ways by what we read in the scriptures and what God's will and way for his followers are. Uh, can you say something to that, just about how do we show, what does it mean to show compassion? What does it mean to love? I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. I often say, you know, if I'm a parent, I just, and I, my way of loving my kids is to say, go ahead and do whatever you want, right? I mean, that now I sound like my dad when I say that. Um, but, you know, love love means we have to say the hard things sometimes. I love you enough to tell you the truth, right? Um, just talk about that, because I, I feel in the church, we're just morphing in the wrong direction on this. Yeah, I think it's such an important point that you make, um, which is that our compassion in some ways has been weaponized against truth, that we've erected sort of this false dichotomy that to be loving is to uh, either to, to, to exist outside of truth or to be a sh- sort of embarrassed about about uh, asserting anything that's true. And of course, the, the, the injustice is that, you know, love without truth is fundamentally unloving and truth without love is a lie, you know, that, that we're actually called as Christians to live with both, right? That we, and I think the human person deeply wants to live in reality. Um, and that's how we grow. That's how we, uh, you know, no one, we've, we've become made miserable if we persist in lies, in living a life of lies or in living in an unreal, an unreal um, sort of uh, mentality. That part is hard to encounter hard truths, but that is the exact opportunity that we have to, to develop ourselves, to grow. And it's really a disservice to other human beings to think that we help people by um, aiding them in living outside of what is true. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of nuances there and ways in which it can be done more or less effectively. And sometimes, you know, someone who's suffering deeply really might need to just um, feel that you love them and feel that you're there for them. Um, and, and that's certainly true. Uh, but, but we don't, you know, we don't help people 
by then the saying that the thing that is hard for them to hear has to become the thing that we deny. And I think this is most obvious in you know areas of sexuality that um, if we want to be compassionate to someone who's struggling with sexual sin, well then we have to just fundamentally say I affirm you in I fear I affirm we have to affirm their identity in order to show compassion. Um, that that's fundamentally not true. That there's you know an old Christian adage that you love the sinner and hate the sin. Um, and that's sort of become like sort of a trite in our minds. We think of that as like a trite cliche, uh, but, it, but it actually is, is an important one, a deeply important one. Um, and, I, and what the movement does is really reverses that. We, don't, we no longer love the sinner and hate the sin. We tend now to love the sin and hate the sinner, you know, in the sense that we've become harsher by, um, through this ideology. And we've become harsher by um, sort of rejecting that there's a fundamental uh, moral order to the universe that we, flourish by um, adapting and conforming ourselves to um, in, in a way that that leads us to free to true freedom. Um, so no, yeah, I think it's such an important point and I go into it um, at some length in the book uh, because of how much I think we are being manipulated by that sort of weaponized compassion. Mm. As you, uh, well, towards the end of the book, you, you got to a point where you talked about, um, you kind of put a call to critical thinking up against critical theory. And, and I like that, you know, here at CPYU, we talk a lot about teaching kids, teaching adults, teaching youth workers, how to think critically and Christianly, to think more deeply about things, to process uh, everything that we encounter in life through, you know, the lens of a biblical world and life view. And I, I love that when you when you said, I'm thinking, okay, those are good marching orders, right, for youth workers, for parents, for each of us as individuals as well. But even beyond that, you know, as we finish up here, we always, we always end by asking our guests to say a word to, to parents. Uh, in this case, you've talked a lot about family. You're a parent. You have six children. Uh, say a word to parents, if you would. Uh, just some sort of encouragement in this or maybe some kind of marching orders from where you sit. And then also, after speaking to parents, uh, to youth workers, youth pastors, people working in, in churches with, with kids in youth groups, and then also to, uh, we'll include pastors in that group as well. Sure. Um, well, first to parents. I mean, I think that the most heartbreaking thing is that I've been here since I wrote the book. I hear all over, from all over the place, parents saying, you know, I sent my children to college and they came back and they kind of hate me and hate everything I stand for. That, and that this is really deliberate, is that there is a desire to separate the, that sort of familial unity um, amongst the youth and the, the older generation. Um, that is fundamental to perpetuating the ideology. And I think that the more we realize that that is an actual effort that's being, that's um, seeded throughout this ideology, um, then we might, that might encourage us to be more careful about where where, who we let shape our, our, our kids' minds, um, not just in college, but also in K through 12, as we see now that there's a whole host of um, ideology being disseminated throughout K through 12, radical gender ideology and um, collectivist ideology. Um, and so I think it's important as parents that we examine and take responsibility for the shape, the influences that are shaping our kids' minds. Um, and maybe we were innocent of that before, ignorant of it, and understandably so, because it has been sort of, uh, you know, under wraps and um, sort of subtle, I think, for a while. But now I don't think that any of us can say that we truly don't know what's happening. Um, and so we have to be careful about that, about media usage as well. There's mm -hmm. so much corruption that happens on the Internet. But to encourage parents, I mean, I, I think that you can feel encouragement in the sense that um, you you are truly the one who is most 
um, it's most uh, it's most um, uh, it's, it's most duty bound to shape your children, and so you can feel a great confidence and courage in that that you know if if there that there is no influence in their lives that knows them more deeply um, and has more care for their soul. Um, you know, it's not their teachers, it's not their neighbors, it's not their friends, it's you. And so that that's that's a wonderful thing, but it also creates this responsibility that you can actually step into that role very confidently and deeply and with um, without sort of uh, a fear that you're you know, that you're being um, too countercultural or too whatever what have you. That you can stand against this movement and and um, and feel confident that this there is a, a whole host of harms that your child will likely avoid by you forming them in the faith and forming them in um, you know, the real human life of virtue and family life and, um, and community with other, other families, other Christians and, and, and their churches, that these things are not small or insignificant, that they are actually where the battle is fought. Um, and so the more that we are um, you know, bringing ourselves and our children closer to our Lord, that the more effectively we will fight this battle because the battle really is fundamentally a spiritual battle. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, before you speak to youth workers, I just want to affirm everything you've said there. We had Christian Smith. I don't know if you're familiar with Christian and, and his uh, National Study of Youth and Religion and the work he's been doing, uh, sociologist at Notre Dame, and Christian's latest book. You know, basically he says that the data shows clearly that parents have the greatest influence, you know, more than anybody else on uh, the spiritual lives of children. I mean, pretty much everything, obviously. And, and, you know, what we've trumpeted here is just keep building that relationship and speak truth. And I'll throw this in that, you know, if this whole idea is kind of new to you and makes your head spin where you talk about the woke uh, ideology and progressive Christianity and, and, and all of that, um, do some reading. And I'll just say this, you know, that's why we're having this conversation, right? Because Noel's book, Awake Not Woke, is, is one that would, would, you know, serve you well with this. So final word to youth workers then, and we'll finish up. Yeah, um, no, to youth workers, I mean, I think that they've got such an important role. And, so, you know, there's the point where young adults want need more mentors, need more role models, you know, outside of the family life, as, you know, as, as influential as the family life is. Um, and, and, you know, I love when my children develop mentorships with people that I can, I trust and that I know are have their good at heart um, and are, you know, uh, striving to be close to our Lord as well in their own personal lives. So that, that, that can become such an important, crucial role. Um, but I would say, you know, and it ties back to your, the earlier question about compassion and truth, uh, you know, the, the, I think feel like one of the more pivotal, pivotal moments in my own faith was as a young adult realizing um, I'm not, if I believe in Christ, if I believe in the Bible, you know, then I cannot live, sustain this lifestyle, you know, that there's something's got to give, like I can't, you know, I, I need, if he, he deserves everything, if he is who he says he is. And so I want to devote my life to him. And that means um, giving up on the things that I will that are not um, going to lead me closer to him. And so that I think is really like the, one of the most powerful messages that a youth work, a youth worker can communicate to young adults is that, you know, this is true. This is who God is. This is his love. And it requires love and response. And love is, means nothing without sacrifice. Our Lord models that. Our, he, he paid the ultimate, gave the ultimate sacrifice of his life and uh, Godfather of his son. And so if we can't make um, sacrifices in our own lives to live uh, lives that are more closely devoted to him, 
then we're not truly loving him. And so if you want to lead with love, lead with love, but lead with love that understands the whole scope and um, of what love is. Mm-hmm. Um, and our Lord models that perfectly. Yeah. Oh, this has been so good. And, and I know we're going to come back and talk to you again. We're going to track with you with, you know, what you're writing. We want to encourage everybody else to do that. Your, your website will include a link. Just tell people what that is. Yeah, my personal writings at noelmaring.com and then I also edit a website called theologyofhome.com where we have a blog and uh, and we link curate articles. I'll post this podcast when that when it publishes on that website as well to our mailing list. Um, so those are the two best ways to stay in touch. Awesome. And then uh, Chris Wagner, as always, will include uh, links to everything we've talked about here, including her book, which we highly recommend. I have read it, and it's up. You know, I said Carl Truman's book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, was sort of the book of the last five years. Um, I'm going to tell Carl I've got one next to it now. So uh, your book, Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. So good. Um, and so come to the player for this particular podcast. You'll find it at cpyu.org. Scroll down. Chris Wagner will have posted everything there that we've spoken about and uh, even more if anything else comes up uh, that we find. And and this is all really to encourage folks. Uh, I I hope that as we've talked about this, you know, people are hearing that this this really is about the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of, of, um, you know, God's will and way in the lives of our families and our kids in our churches. And we, we trust that it's been helpful to you. So, Noel, thank you so much it was great to be here thanks so much yeah thank you i know we'll talk to you again and for everybody listening uh thanks for listening we'll catch you on the next episode of youth culture matters thanks for joining us for youth culture matters a podcast from the center for parent youth understanding if you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture visit our website at cpyu.org and if you have any questions comments or feedback email us at podcast at cpyu.org.